Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our topic today is uh, veterans. We're going to talk about veterans and all the issues that they face. Our guests are Larry Catt, who's the veteran service officer from Monroe County, and the man he replaced, John Tilford, who previously held that position. John is a retired Army Reserve Colonel. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Larry, John, welcome. Thank well, you. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, welcome back, John. And Larry, welcome for the first time. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, John's service, but Larry, why don't both of you talk a little bit about your own uh, service and you know why you have uh, chosen to be in veterans service? Well, I uh, enlisted in the Army in 1966 and uh, retired in 1994 as lieutenant colonel. Um, And I think along the way I was with the 82nd Airborne to begin with, which was quite an eye-opening experience. And you see uh, what some of these veterans go through, some of the uh, issues they face, their families face. And uh, Having been around a lot of people, service people, uh, you kind of develop an interest in them, and there's a feeling that uh, a lot of these people miss out on some of the support and benefits they should get. Uh, Being a veteran service officer offers you the opportunity to work with some of these people and try to see that uh, they get what they deserve and maybe sometimes along the line correct any injustices, but... uh, it's uh, it's quite rewarding for the individual in this position, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to, to uh, help these guys after and ladies after all the things that they've done for their country. Mm-hmm. John, how about your your history in in the military? Well, I had a no pun intended kind of a dumbbell effect. I was uh, <laughs> oh four years uh, in the Marine Corps active and started in uh, March of '65. So we have boot camp over here on my, my right. That's uh, your left as you look at your radio dial. But uh, went to Vietnam a couple of times during that time, but was very, very safe in terms of assignments. Had gone through electronic schools. We were in a mountaintop on uh, Monkey Mountain, they called it, uh, just east of Da Nang. And uh, only about twice the whole time did you hear the nice little crack sound as a bullet goes past your head and doesn't hit anything, which is fine with me. And uh, I really think I have uh, kind of a survivor's guilt from that good luck, it was a, to answer your motivation question, why do you want to help veterans? Because so many of these folks I see were there at the same time I was or through similar things in World War II, Korea, Iraq, and were not as lucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, you think, therefore, the grace of God go I. But I uh, got out of the military, didn't have a thing to do with it, came back to school. Oh, didn't have a thing to do with it, yeah, except using the GI Bill every penny I could get out of it here <laughs> going to IU. And um, finished, did some civil service kind of things for a while. Thought, well, yeah, maybe we'll try reserves, National Guard. Didn't didn't have a good time in the National Guard in the mid seventies because Guard now is great. Guard is terrific now. Fully operational force, you know, terrific. Guard in Indiana nineteen seventies was where the people who went in the late sixties to avoid Vietnam. Just to be real blunt about it, not all of them, but but the majority. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to be in that unit. And tried it for a year and left. Went in the Army Reserves here in Bloomington in seventy nine. Got a basic training unit that had a mission. They had haircuts. They were staying in shape. They went to Fort Benning and Fort Knox and these kinds of places and didn't get out until they kicked me out at age 60 here uh, November 2006. Mm-hmm. And along the way, got a direct commission and uh, finished up as a colonel. My last assignment was, uh, in theory, you understand, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time there because they promoted me to say, thank you very much, get out, was um, Deputy Commander National Ground Intelligence Center, Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I remember when you uh, left Bloomington for a while to go out and do that. Uh, about, about three times. We left uh, after 9-11 to go to Defense Intelligence Agency for a year. Then I applied for and got a command position of a detachment that was going to National Ground Intelligence Center. So I was home for three weeks, went with them for their first mobilization, stayed a year and a half with them in Charlottesville. And this that's obviously Operation Iraqi Freedom at that point. And then um, money ran out, and I came back and went back one last time in 2006 to help set up the Defense Joint Intelligence Operations Center, pronounced DJOC or some weird thing like like this. But that was the last uh, hurrah, the last trip to uh, D.C., and really uh, mm-hmm. it was about time to wind it up. Then, they, then they're so desperate for people now, they say, 
Well, you can retire and come back. You know, we and they're they're taking these folks, a lot of uh, medical folks especially. Mm. And I said, you can you can come back. We can. I said, what's the shortest period of time, and where would I go? One year in D.C. No, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll go back to Bloomington. Yeah, let those younger people do this stuff. That's fine. Right. All right. Our phone numbers today: eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And you can send your email to noon at indiana edu. We're talking about uh, veterans, and if you have any issues uh, pertaining to your status as veterans or anybody in your family. Um, then please feel free to give us a call. I have a question. Um, you made reference to the GI Bill, and that's something that's had an impact on a lot of families. Um, folks have gotten an opportunity to pursue their education who wouldn't have otherwise. What's the current status of the GI Bill, and are the folks who are serving now eligible for the same kind of benefits that uh, you were able to take advantage of? Larry? Well, I know it, it's not the same benefits that I had because at the time I was in, it was uh, no contribution was required from the individual soldier. And um, now most uh, folks select to do that and they put money in, get money back out. Uh, there is a move, I believe, to uh, – improves the GI Bill, and I'm not just exactly sure what the specifics are on that. I know uh, Baron Hill got in a little hot water with some people because he was encouraging them to uh, speak to their representatives to support the bill because it doesn't have uh, full support in Washington. And that's been one of the things also, just off to the side a little bit about veterans things, is uh, they've received a lot of lip service over the years but not a lot of uh, monetary support to go with that. And uh, I think you can look to Congress and see uh, those people that uh, put their money where their mouth is, and that's not always been the case. But Sean may be more up-to-date on that. He's kind of like an education guru, I think. And Well, there's part of this is history and part of this is current. The history, of course, after World War II, is the tuition had a li- living stipend in it there. Uh, folks could not live real, real well, but they could live. And it paid the tuition for the school. So, the, and again, maybe not um, real expensive schools, but, you know, they, they did pretty well. Uh, GI Bill, post-Vietnam, here's your flat rate, buddy. You take your check and get out of here. So if you went to a fairly cheap school, which I was at the time, I was making money going to school. I, had, I was making, I could buy my books and pay my tuition and had money left over. Uh, that's not the case now. And the current rate for full-time is a little over 1000 a month, but, you know, what's IU tuition alone is going to be, what, seven, $8,000 per semester at, th- at this point. So, it's, so you can see where, where that's gone. Jim Webb is the driving force in the Senate, at least, for increased uh, GI Bill benefits. And his uh, thesis harkens back to World War II, which was, by the way, from a taxpayer standpoint, one of the best, if not the best, investment government program in history. For every dollar I think we've heard spent on the GI Bill post-World War II, the government got back, you know, literally thousands of dollars in increased taxes, increased infrastructure, increased engineers, anything you can think of. Think of of our parents, you know, in my case, my parents' generation that benefited that way. And the whole country, everybody benefited. Mm -hmm. But back to the uh, fast forward to Jim Webb, his thesis is trying to match that. Well, it's a heck of a lot more expensive these days to try to match World War II era uh, benefits. His um, plan is that, okay, maybe not Harvard, maybe not Princeton, but at least find the average of the, what we used to call land-grant college, uh, public kind of college uh, tuition. We should be able to pay that expense, get them a little bit of money to live on, not getting rich. That should be good. Well, that's probably about twice the amount of money we're paying now for GF Bill. I think it's a great plan. It's been attacked from some other angles as being too too expensive because every government program now is attacked that way because money's a money's a problem. Ironically, partially, partially because of the Iraq situation sure. is is driving that train. But um, there are many efforts afoot, and as we speak, people are trying to work out compromises, and something will pass. I fully anticipate some benefits going to pass this this Congress pretty quickly, but uh, maybe not as much as Jim Webb would like. And, of course, those of you familiar with Jim Webb knows what he was through during Vietnam himself and his sons in Iraq now, as I recall. But uh, we have people in, in Congress who are in favor of this, and it's a nice time for veterans' benefits in terms of sympathy and empathy, uh-huh. put it both ways. 
But uh, dollars is a real problem, as it always is. Now, Governor Mitch Daniels has a reputation of as being a friend of the veteran, um, and you can comment to that. Is he someone that um, you've asked to lobby on your behalf in Washington for for this kind of legislation? I, I have have not. This is the state level. My what I tried to do when I was in D.C. those trips was to go to whoever our congressman was at the time for Bloomington, and it varied during that time, about sure. three three different times, and uh, Luger's office and Bai's office. And I would get dressed up in my little green Class A uniform and, and go visit, and I'd have my little PowerPoint set up and say, here's the file and here's the issue and this kind of thing. And I think it's uh, one of the privileges we have in this country is you can hop in your car and pay $4 a gallon. I'm, I'm joking. Excuse me. <laughs> I'll hop in, somehow get to D.C. and uh, call them ahead of time, and they will make time for it. You're not going to talk to the person themselves probably, but you're going to talk to a staffer, which is better because who actually does the work in terms of legislation effort and guides that congressman or senator is the senior staffer for that line of work and meet with them and tell them what you want, and they will listen to you. Mm-hmm. But I never tried the indirect stuff except that. If I was to recommend one organization, which I will whether you want me to or not, it's the Military Officers Association of America, MOAA. And uh, they changed their name a few years ago. It used to be Retired Officers Association or something. Well, it's not just for retirees, so they, they changed their name. Totally nonpartisan, very professional, highly respected on, on the Hill. So it's MOAA, and if you want to learn statuses, let's say, the best answer to your question, educational benefits, you go MOAA in your Google search, up it pops, you take a look at that and, and click over to the legislation status pages, mm-hmm. and it'll give you the background, what's going on, who to contact. They even have the letter set up for you, so you can, so you can go ahead and, and help you to lobby these folks. What I like about them is they're so nonpartisan. Yeah. I think one of the uh, groups that are really uh, very successful in lobbying and watching that sort of thing are uh, the service organization, uh, AMVETS, Legion, VFW. And I know Les Compton with the AMVETS uh, just uh, left a position of state commander, but they were in Indianapolis frequently. They have a meeting they call the Big Four. I think they have the governor's ear. Uh, they watch very closely what legislation is going on. They also make frequent trips to Washington, and I think they're uh, familiar with the people there, and those people are familiar with them so that uh, they can make a difference and they can put some pressure on when things are not really mm-hmm. going the way we would like. Could could you give us a, a little primer on all the different service organizations? I mean, like AMVETS and the Legion. What what are the differences, and what are the? I mean, are, are there? Yeah, what are the differences between all the groups? Well, I don't know that I could tell you all the differences. Uh, some of them are just membership requirements. Of course, the VFW, you had to be uh, in a foreign country, serving foreign land. Um, AMVETS and Legion, I believe, are pretty much open to anybody that's been in the service. Um, They do a lot of uh, work within the community, a lot of things that people are not aware of. Uh, They help veterans. Uh, For example, we had a fellow that came back uh, from, I believe it was from Desert Storm, that had got into some contaminant, had terminal cancer. Normally, it was taking about 10 to 12 months to get a claim through. Uh, AMVETS, I know, were real active and, and again, Les Compton uh, in pushing this through and uh, were able to get all the benefits done, everything in place before the the young man died and his family was taken care of. Uh, But they reach out and refer people. Um, They do have a a lot of fundraising things, but everybody thinks they're kind of wealthy, but considering the kinds of things they do. For example, uh, I know VFW, Legion, and AMVETS here in this county share the responsibility of getting the flags out on the Memorial Day graves, and uh, that's a lot of manpower, plus the uh, the expense on that is uh, up around, I don't know, four or $5,000. Uh, this year, we're hoping the county can put in 1000 Of course, everybody's after the county for money mm-hmm. and stuff. But they do provide some support on that. Uh, The fireworks on the 4th of July, that's a big AMVET function. Uh, The Legion, I know after the Memorial Day thing, had a breakfast open to the public. And so they're doing both kinds of social things, uh, service things within the community, helping the individual, and also um, lobbying and trying to see that things 
are done right. Uh, we also use, when we file claims, we use the service organizations a lot of times as a claimant representative, and we send the files to them. They're co-located with our VA regional offices. They can watch over the claims. They can provide the people advice. They can go with them if there are appeals and this sort of thing. But that, that occurs at a regional level, and those people are called national service officers. But uh, some of the organizations here are more active with having also what they call a veteran service officer who can advise individuals on stuff, uh, generally because the way things change and uh, uh, <clears throat> happen at a fairly fast pace. They will refer anybody that needs help over to my office, and, and we will work with them then to uh, help them get their claims through. Yeah, part of the uh, reason for my question is before Memorial Day weekend, I, I was looking through the list of all of the events in the newspaper, and there were a lot of different things that people could do, and all the different organizations were involved with one. And you know, I was just thinking as a, you know, a reader who's not that familiar with all of them, What's the difference? You know, who, who joins which one? So that was sort of the... A lot of folks belong to all of them. I mean, they, they will. And there's guys that are, you know, every organization has a core of workers. And you'll pretty much find that these individuals that uh, are, are have some involvement with each of the organizations and stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they work like, for example, uh, we have the DAV van, which runs mm-hmm. to... Uh, Indianapolis, usually on a daily basis, uh, and they help provide drivers for that, you know, and they'll oversee the program. In fact, I might mention right now, we're really hurting for drivers uh, for that program. Uh, These are all volunteers. It takes about uh, three or four trips to Indianapolis to get qualified, to get the physical, the TB test. Uh, background checks, fingerprints, all that. And uh, <clears throat> we would like to have it set up where that a driver maybe drove only once every two weeks, but some of these guys are driving almost every day. And with vacations coming up, it's gotten to be a real critical point. So if anybody's interested in being a driver, if they would contact me, I could get them in touch uh, with the correct people. Phil Deckard right now is running the program. And uh, They can only take about five people at a time in the van, but it's provided a real help to a lot of these people and uh, that that have no other way to get to Indianapolis. So that's to run them up to the VA hospital for their treatments. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I want to make that clear. Yeah. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. I wanted to to, – Talk about the range of things that you do because I, I was you know, thinking about the fact that you have World War II vets still, some around, um, Korea, Vietnam, the first Gulf War, this Gulf War, which I know people have some unique issues for that. Um, so let's start back at the beginning. And what are the issues that, that you come into contact with the regard, the, in regards to the people who are still around from World War II? Well, well you let me want to take that, John. Or? Well, I'll give you just a little bit of background, um, a kind of basic service officer kind of theory. And let me just add a couple of things on the service organization. People sometimes think, well, I've got a, I'm not a member of the American Legion or I'm not a member of the VFW. Will they help me? Well, heck yes, they will. Mm-hmm. They'll help anybody. So it's a part of the charter with the government recognition for their organizations that they will help anybody and must help regardless of, of membership. So don't be shy about that. And to uh, to agree totally to what Larry said, and also point out that here locally in Bloomington, the American Legion has wheelchairs, hospital beds, canes, whatever, for for borrow loan or in some cases they're never going to get them back for for veterans who uh, service connected veterans and those those kind of issues or non service connected veterans. And that gets me back to my point: you have two big. Here's my gestures over the radio. You have two big sides to the VA benefits program for veterans. Uh, you have the non service connected pension kinds of things which includes some medical care, that, that kind of stuff. Then you have the guys or ladies who were injured or became ill because of their service and residual medical and other types of benefits over there. And it's a big divide. For the um, medical care, as an example, for a, uh, let's say, person got fairly decent income in Monroe County at this time, you know, if you're, if you're making more than, oh, I forget what the number is now, I'd say high, mid to high, high 40s for you, you and a spouse, you're not going to get any VA health care. 
you have to have some kind of service-connected disabilities to, to qualify for the, uh, for the clinic, let's then say. And why would you want to go to the clinic? You know, why would somebody go there? Because you can get, number one, fairly cheap drugs if you're going to the VA clinic. Uh, if you have even a 10% disability, which is not that hard to get, and if you have time, I'd like to get into that. You don't pay anything for the uh, office visit to see a physician or, or a nurse practitioner. And your meds are costing now uh, $8, $8 per month supply of basically anything they have in what they call a formulary, a list of their approved medications. Let's go for, for just a second or two over to the service-connected side. Uncle Sam, through the VA, is going to take care of anything it takes to take care of that service-connected disability medically. No expense to the veteran for anything the rest of his or her life at all, whether it's uh, prosthetics or vocational rehabilitation or obviously the medications or these series of surgeries or all these horrible things you hear about from the Iraq and the improvised explosive devices. All that, of course, is going to be free treatment through the military system for a while when they're discharged through the VA system. And, of course, there's legislation trying to unify that approach, which is long overdue. But there are two distinct uh, distinct worlds. I mentioned pension earlier, and I always like to get the word out about this. Any veteran with any wartime ser- or time service doesn't have to be in the combat. Just had to be in the military during a wartime period by one day and have 90, 90 days, no less than 90 days total service, it has basic eligibility for pension, meaning John Tilford's really stupid and steps in front of a truck and gets, uh, you know, totally crippled, cannot work, and I could file for VA pensions because of, in my case, two different wartime periods, the global war and terrorism and also the Vietnam thing. The, getting hit by the truck had nothing at all to do with service, but if I can't work anymore, and here's the catch, it's a needs-based system. It's, they're not going to give me money just for being, being stupid in, in case uh, – unless I can't afford to live elsewise, you know, elsewhere. How can I say this? The income has to be pretty gosh darn low. But there's even a positive side to that. If let's, let's hope that I have enough income from, let's say, Social Security disability or some other retirements I've gotten now that would exceed their income limit for pension, what happens when I go to the nursing home and I get you know, huge medical expenses? In that case, they allow the medical expenses to be deducted from the other countable income – throwing me into a situation whereby probably my other income is wiped out so they pay me the maximum VA pension. And there's a parallel program for surviving spouses, hmm. typically widows. So if, if mom or dad or granddad or grandma is in a nursing home someplace and there is a wartime service in history, people better check this out because you're, you're talking thousands of dollars per month for this. Uh, yeah, can I, can I break in there? Because I have a very specific question because my family is involved in something like this now. My father was a World War II vet. Um, and he's been dead now for about 25 years. And we actually did discover about two years ago that my mom, who's still living, was eligible for uh, some sort of a pension benefit. And so it's called, you guys are going to know this, Surviving Spouse Improved Pension Benefits with Aid and Attendance. And we, we were, our, our claim was actually approved back in February of 2007. I guess my question is how long does it take from claim approval a claim being approved. approved to actually getting a benefit because we're still waiting. In the old days, it was about six or seven months, but they weren't nearly as busy. And yeah. during my tenure, so <laughs> pointing toward Larry over here. It, there's been some improvement in that. Um, actually, once you've been approved, I would think that the uh, the payment, and I don't know this for sure, would be almost immediate. I'd, I'd, I'm not aware of a delay once. Uh, that sounds too long to me. Too. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I misspoke. The claim was received in February of 2007. Okay. So, so it's been what 16, 18 months. You're overdue. Something, something's yeah. wrong someplace. Right. Really, because it really but, should be very simple. If you have your have your good, nice, complete claim all ready to go, and here's, you know, proof they're in the nursing home, and they're not there for fun. They're there because they, as their patients, right. makes a medical expense. Right. Uh, and here's how much it costs, and here's what their income is, and here's the marriage certificate to the deceased veteran, and here's his, let's say, separation form or DD-214 or World War II. They didn't – they had other form yeah. numbers. Uh, well, that should be fairly quick. Yeah, well, well you know, we, we can certainly try to solve this our, ourselves, but I think my main point is that we didn't know about this benefit. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, we didn't know that my mother was eligible because my father was the one, of course, who had served in the war. He died from something totally different from his wartime service. But she was still a surviving spouse of a wartime service veteran. Right. And she was in a, you know, a nursing And you facility. were not listening to WFIU <laughs> <laughs> on, on the noon edition getting this accurate information. That's right. Back that that's time. right. So that's a good tip for people to know. There's uh, some misunderstanding. I have some uh, 
people that get rather irate because they do not get that benefit. I think right now, for an individual, it's like seven thousand four hundred thirty-eight dollars. That's just for the the pension. And some people say with a large income of thirty thousand dollars, but they have a tremendous amount of medical expenses, will get down so that they can qualify that for that. Some people that are say making only twelve or fifteen thousand a year don't turn in any medical expenses, and they cannot understand why this person I know over there mm-hmm. has thirty thousand dollars. I only have half that much, and I I can't qualify. So. They need to track those medical expenses. I know we uh, have people that that go to the drug stores. They get, you know, they give them printouts of all of the things they have, and and they keep some records along the way of what they're spending. Now, if any of those medical expenses are reimbursed, I've also had people get in trouble for that because they report them later on. I mean, they're bouncing all this stuff against the IRS and Social Security. And three or four years down the line, then they get a bill because the initial figure they gave them wasn't quite correct. So you got to be careful. But uh, it's it's worth looking into, especially in the aid and attendance is a big thing. Uh, that can make a real difference for somebody, say, that's in a nursing home or requires 24-hour care. And that would be above and beyond that that particular pension. And, let, let me kind of belabor that point, sure. but there's, there's misunderstanding on many of these things. And to me, aid and attendance is really pretty gosh darn, to be blunt about it, simple. And for both the veteran's pension, non-service-connected pension, for the veteran himself or herself if they're you know, incapacitated, and for the surviving spouse, you have very parallel programs. All of them have three levels. You have your basic level. In the veteran's case, he has got to be totally disabled, cannot work. You have the surviving spouse level, which is your veteran's spouse is dead. Yeah, that's all there is. The second level would be your housebound. And that's like a medical condition, maybe oxygen, maybe mobility issue or balance or, or many things would preclude people from leaving their home, which is fine to go to the doctor, fine to go out and get your food when you have to. But they're not, they're not there playing tennis. You know, there's, there's an issue at this point. They're not, not healthy people. And the last level is the aid and attendance, which means to live, you require the aid and attendance of another helper or, or series of helpers to do basic functions for you, to be real blunt about it. And, you, you know, you can kind of glean what I'm talking about there. It's not where, and I've had, Larry's probably had this too, people will see this, oh, well, you can get so much money from the VA if you're aid and attendance special program, and they walk in and ask for it. No, if you're walking in and asking for it, <laughs> you're not going to get aid and attendance. I don't, I don't think so. But there's only those, those three levels, and each one has a progressively higher income limit, but it also turns into, if you're down to zero income because you've deducted these medical expenses Larry's talking about, a progressively higher income payment. It's, it's, it's just the... I want to say inverse, but it's very, very parallel. And most people in the eight and ten situation, when it's costing like a minimum of what around four thousand bucks around here per month, you know, simple case. Most World War II folks or even Korean era folks don't have that kind of retirement income, so it's going to wipe it out. So they're going to be down to zero countable income, which means they'll get the maximum eight and tenants, which is probably, I'm guessing, somewhere between fifteen hundred and a two thousand dollars a month at the, for the veteran, and probably right around a thousand or a little over that for a surviving spouse yes, right I now. I think we were expecting between nine hundred and a thousand dollars a month, something like that, which would help out. The rates, the rates change every year, December 1st, but they always pay at the end of the month. So January 1st would be the first bigger amount. All right. Well, we've had uh, the time to take a break. Uh, we're talking about veterans issues today with Larry Cat and with John Tilford. If you have questions or comments, phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. 
You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Larry Catt, Veteran Service Officer from Monroe County and the man he replaced, if he, if he can be replaced, John Tilford, who held the job before Larry did. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Thank you both for all that information uh, that was specific to my situation. Now we have a caller on the phone, uh, another Bob. Bob, go ahead. Yes, uh, I have a question and I guess it resolves around uh, what constitutes a veteran. Um, how do you define that? Um, my particular case was that I was in the Air Force Reserve for six years. During that time, I was called to active duty for the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis for about 30 days. And according to my DD-214, I had no active duty time. Does that make me a veteran or a non-veteran? John? I can try, but as you can expect, it's not a simple answer. The definition of veteran varies with the, with the particular law you're talking about. You're going to have a law for... Uh, as this example, the non-service-connected pension we were talking about, you would not qualify for that if you had less than 90 days total service. Um, however, for as an example, just even if you had never been mobilized at all, you're going to get a, you know, you and I die, we're going to get a little flag to drape our coffin. That's a veteran. You get the, the free marker kind of thing if you need a free grade marker for your place. Kind of, so it depends upon the benefit you're talking about. Uh, I'm kind of suspicious. If you get a DD-214, that's a separation form from active duty. So if you got that after the 30 days. No, no. I did not get that after 30 days. got that after the finish of my total enlistment. Well, actually, we were given a year off of that enlistment. If we wanted to take it, I elected not to. I stayed the full six years of my original enlistment. But uh, we did not get the DD-214 until after the end of that. Yeah. Well, again, I, I can't give you a simple answer for it. I think, first of all, thanks for your service because I just watched a couple of weeks ago that 13 Days in October mm-hmm. movie, which if those of you people haven't taken a look at that, it takes you back real well to uh, Adley Stevens and the UN, this kind of thing. So that was clearly stressful service. And there's a very tragic case of a Bloomington gentleman who actually piloted that little whale boat thing that went across to the uh, first Russian vessel stopped by that blockade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... and uh, well, I won't go into details, but I was really upset with the VA. They didn't, didn't improve his claim for a disability later. But it's, it, the character, you know, the role was actually portrayed in the movie, uh, the right. last name Shippen, who's there. In my, in my eyes, personally, you're a veteran. Because if somebody pulls up their right hand, swears to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, you don't mm-hmm. know from that point forward what the heck's going to happen to you. You right. could have been mobilized the next day, which in your case, you were mobilized. Right. And if you're mobilized under Title 10 U.S. Code, that's federal money. So you're no longer state control, reserve control, whatever, you're actually federalized at that point just as much as a soldier, airman, sailor, as anybody else ever was or oh. will be. Oh, sure. So, so I think you're a veteran lies, no, no doubt about it. I okay. appreciate your service. All right. Thank you. All right, Bob. Thanks a lot for the call. We have two more callers on the phone. The next caller is Hazel. Hazel? Yes. Hello, Hazel. Go ahead. Uh, I was just listening or half listening to the program and uh, – I am a widow of a veteran from World War II, and I wondered where to find out more about this that you're talking about. Well, I would suggest you give our office a call if you're able to stop by to come by, and uh, we'll be glad to uh, go over uh, your husband's record and to talk to you about what possibly might be available for you. Um, We prefer to work on an appointment basis because a lot of the conversations we have are dealing with confidentiality. Sure. Uh, But we do take people on a walk-in basis, so if you happen to be in the area and you want to come by, that's fine. Our number is uh, 349-2568. Wait just a minute here. 349, what was the last? 2568. 2568. Um. I'm employed part-time by the county. I'm only there until uh, noon each day from 8 to 12. 
Uh, I have assistants who are as capable as I am, I'm sure, of uh, answering any questions and doing whatever I do. Uh, they are there from uh, Monday till 3 and Thursday till 3. So if you came by on Monday or Thursday, you could see somebody up till 3 o'clock. And we are located in the Curry Building. We just recently moved from the Health Services Building. Okay, and that's that's on Sixth uh, Street, is it? Seventh Street. It's Seven. right right down from the Justice Building, west of the Justice Building. Okay. All right, Hazel. Good luck. Thank. You. All right, John. Did you? Well, I was, I was jumping up and down because uh, <laughs> I appreciate first of all Larry giving the good information out of where to find this, and I know it bothers Larry when we help people and it's very satisfying, and then you think. Okay, this has got to be only the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. which is one reason for really appreciating to be here today to get word out about veterans' benefits because so many of these people, again, come from a generation that didn't want to accept things. And I always tell them, hey, buddy, who cares about you? Do it for your family. Mm-hmm. You know, do it for your spouse or kids or whatever. File a claim. But I wanted to, to get your attention before I get off here to hit th- th- at least three things really hard, and then I hope we have some more questions. Uh, first, um, a lot of Vietnam guys come come back. You had what over what? I'm trying to think how many people were actually in Vietnam at one time for a short while. It's got to be obviously hundreds of thousands because mm-hmm. I was there. You had a, what a quarter million people there at the one time. But um, a lot of, a lot of folks went through Vietnam. Anybody who had one foot, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, were in country in Vietnam for even one day during the wartime period are automatically assumed by the VA to have been exposed to Agent Orange. And there's a list of disabilities which are automatic. VA would cringe if they hear me say this, but it's true, are automatically rated. All they got to do is claim it is disabled for those particular disabilities as being service-connected. And the big ones uh, that I can think of immediately are prostate cancer and a diabetes type 2, adult-onset diabetes. And a lot of people get these things just as they get older anyway, but it turns out that people who were in Vietnam get them a heck of a lot more than higher rate than the population as a whole. So I watch that PSA, and I encourage the other guys out there to, too. And I think sucker goes out. You get diagnosed. If you got a little cancer, you catch it early for treatment, but also you immediately file your claim with the VA for a service connection for that, and you're going to get it. Guaranteed you're going to get it. And same thing for diabetes type 2, which is, can be nasty if you let it out of control. And you have secondary disabilities. No, no, you don't want secondary disabilities from diabetes type 2. You want to catch it and keep it medicated so you don't get the vision problems, kidney problems, heart problems, etc. The goal is here not to get more money out of being disabled for a higher percentage. No, that's not a good idea. And that gets me indirectly to the um, second issue in terms of benefits on the service-connected side. Somebody gets a service-connected disability, only 10%. And I think my first disability was an ankle I screwed up playing basketball. You know, obviously a real combat-related wound, right? But, you know, I can still walk and do things, but it's some things I can't do anymore. I get a 10% rating for that. Not only does it get me into the clinic, regardless of what my income is, via clinic, not only do I not pay for the doctor's visit when I go there with a sinus problem like I'm about to get now from cutting grass when it was a dusty day, but um, I get a little bit of compensation for that, or I would, except it's offset from my retirement now. But if somebody's not retired military, they get, what is it, 115 or 117 bucks a month for 10%, whatever. Let's go to the, to the county level. The county, because I'm a disabled veteran, I, I proved that over there in the auditor's office, second floor, um, Susan Floyd's good at it. Uh, Christina's good at it right there in the office. So here, look at what the VA gave me, 10% rating for this. Oh, here's an extra 24600 and someone bucks off your property property assessment, and it saves me about 400 bucks a year on my property taxes. Um, even at the 0% level. Now, 0% for a service connection is not a turndown. It just means you're, yeah, you're, you're disabled in some respect from your service. It's not quite b- bad enough to justify 10%. So here's your 0% rating. With that... The Child and Disabled Veteran Award here at Indiana University or any other Indiana state-supported school pays all their tuition and fees. So my kids got to go to school. Basically, well, one didn't take advantage of it, but right here in Indiana, university, campus where we sit now, free. Now, they got to buy books, and they got to eat, and they got to sleep someplace, but that's a heck of a deal. That's for Purdue. It's for uh, all the regional campuses of the schools, all the Ivy Techs. What am I missing? Uh, University of Southern Indiana. Ball State. Ball State. State. Thanks. All these. All these. uh, Follow that. uh, And there's different names for child disabled veteran, remission of fees, only for the kids of. The veterans themselves don't get it. Only for the kids of service-connected disabled veterans of wartime service or Purple Heart recipients 
or prisoners of war for a certain period of time minimum, which I'm not familiar with that one. Heck of a benefit. And then lastly, and I'll leave you alone. You can actually do your, your job over there, is uh, oh, a few of us have been thinking about this for a while. I'm getting real serious about it now because I'm going to try to hijack one of Larry's columns on what they call honor flight. And you've, if you haven't seen this in the newspapers, just do a little Google search and put in honor flight and see what pops up. There's a national organization that flies World War II veterans to see the World War II memorial in Washington, D.C. And just think about that for a second. How, how touching that is. Some you know, there's a national organization, you apply to that directly as a veteran and you're ranked with everybody else, and that's nice. However, there are also communities scattered throughout the country. They're doing exactly the same thing, same title. There's even online a honor flight for dummies kind of a deal, which so people like here in Monroe County can, can do this thing and, and, uh, and borrow other people's experiences to do it. And I think we should. I think we ought to see if we can get enough veterans to contact, ironically enough, Larry's office at 3492568 and say, yeah, I'd go. So the question is, do we have enough Monroe County veterans who are willing to take a free ride to Washington, D.C. to see the World War II Memorial? And we'll have to have, they call them guardians. So there's about a ratio of maybe one to three helper people because mm-hmm. some of these folks have wheelchairs or walkers mm-hmm. or medications, and some don't. Some are fine. They can take care of themselves. And uh, take them as a group, and we charter an aircraft, and we land at, I hope, National Airport because it's more convenient. And you tra- uh, charter a little, uh, oh, these tour buses will take any kind of money they can get, as you well know, because they'll arm wrestle you to get on the tour bus. But those folks to go to the World War II Memorial, some of the other local memorials close by, like the Vietnam, the Korean, mm-hmm. uh, maybe stop at the Capitol, stop at Arlington National Cemetery, a whole bunch of layers of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is free, by the way. Anybody can do that that applies ahead of time. Done that a couple, about three times now, and uh, I just want to do that for the Monroe County veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, John will have a column. He's going to, as he said, he's going to mm-hmm. hijack Larry's column space, which is in the paper every other week about veterans' issues. So you'll be reading more about that. I, I just got back from Washington actually and saw that exact thing playing out. It was very touching, very, very exciting. I hope that that uh, can happen locally. All right, we have a caller on the line. We're going to get to Robin next. Robin. Yes, uh, my father, uh, born in 1923, served in World War II in the European theater, uh, Battle of the Bulge, etc. Uh, he is now uh, um, stuck in a in a reclining chair. He can't even lay down. He, so, but it's not a result of his of any injuries of a war. So, everything you're talking about right now doesn't pertain to him. Is that correct? Potential exception of medical care, because it sounds like he's got some issues and uh... right. And certainly his military service alone, regardless of any uh, service-connected disabilities, would qualify him for the basic uh, medical care if, if he meets the needs test. They have a needs test for non-service-connected people for medical care. And, of course, the answer to all these questions is to apply and see what happens. If, you, if, if he does not apply for medical benefits, and, and Larry can add the specifics on this, I think it's a VA Form uh, 1010 for basic uh, medical benefits. And attach a copy of the separation form and ship it into the VA medical people and say, sure, you got it. That might include medications. It might include uh, adaptive equipment. It might include who knows who knows what's suitable for his case. Might, but you never know until you apply and find out for sure. Larry, thanks, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was one thing that most veterans expected was medical care. Uh, due to budgetary considerations, they've broken the veterans down into eight priority groups. Uh, <clears throat> priority group eight. Uh, can consists mostly of those people without any service-connected disabilities. If you hadn't enrolled in the program by 2003, I believe it was January 16th, uh, you're no longer eligible for benefits along there. And we've had, uh, in fact, we've had people that had appointments scheduled. I've gone out and looked at their letters and stuff. All their appointments were canceled and they were no longer eligible because of those restrictions. And uh, that's uh, one of the shocking things. But I still agree with John. You uh, should let somebody else decide you're not eligible. Uh, if, if you think there's a chance, you should come talk to us or you can go by the clinic and get that Form 10-EZ and uh, fill it out, and it's not that difficult. I'm, I'm just now trying to visualize the Form 1010 in front of myself, and I realize there's a little medical expense section on that form. So a person can report, I don't know, pick a number, $50,000 income, 
But if they're paying out, you know, another $20,000 in medical expenses, which is not that hard to do these days, then the candle income can be reduced right there on the application form. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to get to eligibility which are unpleasant ways, but they still still exist. Right. So the answer is to still still apply and provide all possible information. See what all happens. All right, yeah, Robin, give them give them a call. Our phone number is eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana edu. Here's an email that came in. It says, "What's on the top ten list of benefits that are off limits to gay and lesbian soldiers? Uh, because Veterans Affairs doesn't recognize their families, their same sex partners, and partners' children as families." Well, I'm losing that. I don't, I don't think there is a problem there as far as veterans' benefits. Nobody asks them, nobody cares as far as applying for benefits. And I've had gay and lesbian people in the office, and they would come in with almost combative attitude saying, we we're going to turn me down. I say, what for? You know, we fill out the forms and we turn in the applications and, and get the benefits for them. So I don't, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question. I don't know what we hard to answer through the email here in print in front of you, but um, we don't care. You know, as far as uh, the benefits issues, what we may be making reference to, of course, is don't ask, don't tell in terms of people on active duty being discharged when it comes up. And that's, that's, that's an issue. I think there may be a reference to um, their partners or children as well. Oh, where they would qualify as yeah. legal, legal children for dependents mm-hmm. or for children's benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I can't speak to that. I haven't had that circumstance that, that I knew of. Do you mm-hmm. – yeah, do – can – if your children – if you never married the the um, father or mother of your children, Good point. are they still counted as your children if you can prove it, that they are your – in fact, your children? I doubt it because I'm thinking the Indiana law on uh, common law marriages was as a male-female law. Mm-hmm. So the – Again, which is not a problem for the VA common law, but that's still male female. So, um, so maybe there is a problem there. I didn't realize. I don't know that there'd be a problem though with adopted children if a, if a person has adopted a child. Oh, a legal adoption. That's yeah. a very good point. And uh, that one of the things is like on remission of fees. Uh, adopted children can receive that. I forget it has to be a certain age, and I don't recall that that they have to have done that, but. Uh, if a service member has a, an adopted child, there's no requirement that they be married or anything. So hey, What you're both saying basically is on these forms, it doesn't say sexual orientation anywhere. No. So if they uh, are veterans and they have children, um, now their same-sex partners doesn't. They won't they get the spousal benefits. But the adoptive children thing right. sounds, right. sounds good. But spa- a good yeah, point. spousal benefits are out of are still not an opportunity or not right. an option. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Okay. So we have another phone call and it's Pete. Pete? Yes. Um, I have a question about the World War II widow's benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, just one wrinkle on that, and that is the fact that my, my father, after um, 17 years, I think, divorced my mother. She never remarried. She's now, you know, a divorced, <laughs> a divorcee sort of widow. Um, <laughs> does does that divorce affect that uh, that circumstance? Well, the bad news is, uh, yes, it does. And okay. uh, I had an occasion, you know, a friend of mine, a good friend, uh, didn't bother to tell me that his mother had divorced his dad before he passed away. You know, we went through the application form and got down to the last portion of uh, when did you marry him, and it only ended with his death, right? Well, no, he ended when he divorced me. Well, excuse me very much, but. We can Goodbye. go ahead. And we can, you know, I can help you. We can fill this form out and mail it in, but it's not going to do any good because not only a person who was, uh, let's say, divorced from the veteran at the time of being sexist here, assuming as a male veteran at the time of his death, but even if the um, lady in this case had left the guy uh, and was no longer cohabitating at the time he passed away, they'd have a real burden to prove that there was a marriage relationship there for the veteran. And I, and I nice lady, good friend of mine, did everything I could come up up with trying to help out, and I, I had a brick wall. Well, what, a, what a you short be. addition to that, and that is, um, how, can a person find, like, I have no idea where my father's DD-214 would be. Yes. Um, I'm me, sure there are a lot of people in that kind of circumstance. So, let, me, uh, let me hit the marriage, or excuse me, the widow thing uh, real quick. I'm having a senior moment here, and then have Larry do the, the I know he's, I can see his eyes now, he's thinking standard form way, I can see it from here. <sighs> But what you may be thinking of the uh, divorce situation is military retirement pay. And uh, somebody who's married to a fellow who, being sexist again, who put in 20, 30 years in the military, divorces him. They do have a, a legal draw on part of that military retirement pay. 
which was passed here, what, about 20-some-odd years ago, and some people aren't aware of that. But I'll, I'll shut up and go back to Larry, and he's getting the information on your dad. Uh, 214s or discharge papers, sometimes they're in the earlier days, they, they went by different nomenclature, uh, can be obtained. Um, you could come to our office if you're having problems locating them. A lot of uh, military people had them placed in a recorder's office. Uh, I don't know. That was when I got out. They recommended that you put it there for safekeeping. Uh, they no longer recommend that because of identity theft. Indiana is one of the few states that I know of that has uh, taken some precaution and no longer um, release those records just to anybody. Uh, you have to show that you are the person. Um, sometimes the recorder comes down and we work very closely with us and, and we'll verify that the person has a need. Uh, they can be requested out of the uh, National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis. Some of their records, uh, the top floor of that office building burned off back in the 70s, and so some of those records are not uh, available. There's also the archives up at the state where they can be obtained. So there are a number of locations where we can run them down. It just uh, you know may take a, a few weeks or so to get it, but it's... It's not very difficult, and it is a common request that we receive. I, I, I would have thought so. My father remarried, so there was another. There's another widow uh, who's a real widow, but uh, the question would be uh, for a person in my circumstance: How in the world do you find an ancient document like that? I'm not even sure where my own Tutu uh, DD-214 is. And it's, from the late 60s. So. Pete, give him a call. 349-2568. Thank you so much. If uh, I know we're running short of time, I want to throw on something really quick. People see the Walter Reed deals or these other wounded warrior kind of things and think, oh, my gosh, this medical care is horrible. We're giving our return people. Not exactly true. The great majority of it is very good medical care. There's some of these folks around their staff and, or the facilities under staff. And I had a couple of surgeries up in Indianapolis during the last year or two. Had things done to me at Walter Reed, which I'm not fun. I can't talk about. Bethesda, et cetera. And I have never received any better care in my life than I did in those military facilities. Also, over here at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, I have a marvelous hospital. Really good care. So some of these things got to take with a grain of salt to realize their isolated instances. All right. We're out of time. I want to give the phone number again, though, just in case you have any questions that didn't get answered today. You can call Larry Catt at 349-2568. I want to thank our guests today, Larry Catt, the veteran service officer for Monroe County, and John Tilford, who used to have that job. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, Ariana Prothero, and uh, Catherine Hageman, who are our two producers today, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.